Welcome. You're listening to the Gideon Warrior Radio Network. Look for us on TalkShoe.com. Type in keyword Gideon Warrior Network. And you can find us and other Israelite speakers at ChristianAmericanMinistries.com and AngloIsraelTruth.com. Please remember your free will gifts and offerings help us to continue laboring in the vineyard. Please consider visiting our support page. We thank you for visiting our network and sites, and it's our prayer you'll be edified by them. Here's the message, and thanks for listening. This is part 10 in the series, America's Constitutional Idolatry. In part 9, we concluded that part of the message series with a bit of historical data from the time of the first Secretary of the Treasury up until the period of history in America where the debauching of our currency began to be the norm. I'm going to subtitle this message, Self-Evident Truths, Indispensable Pillars, Out with the Old God, In with the New. Now, I wanted to take some time, I mentioned in the end of that series, uh, series message, that I wanted to look at some of the basic underlying principles, which many people advocate are the principles embodied in the sacred documents of the Declaration and the Constitution. The first of these are nearly always conveyed that both these documents recognize the existence of God as a self-evident truth or an indispensable pillar. Remember that we touched on the beliefs of the pagan Roman philosopher Cicero three centuries before and three centuries after. Rome was perfecting the art of syncretism. Many know already what the terms mean. But for those new to the terms, briefly, it's defined as the amalgamation or attempted amalgamation of different religious cultures or philosophical thought. So Greek and Roman thought and belief of many gods is syncretized with the rising Christian acknowledgement of Jesus Christ and the one true God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Redeemer of his people, laying down his life to reunite his people under his headship and covenant, having been previously cast off and divorced, as was recognized at Jeremiah 3.8 and Hebrews 8.8. 8. The new theory or philosophical doctrine, therefore, becomes a supreme God, or simply referred to as a creator, or a supreme judge of the universe. In colonial America, many of them used the term natural law or nature's God. However, first, what all of Christianity needs to acknowledge, saying this, does not acknowledge the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who is revealed to the world in the biblical record. It, secondly, also fails to acknowledge the Son, in whom all power and authority was transferred. Matthew 28, 18-20, and 1 Corinthians 15, 16-25. Maybe we should go there. I think it bears going ahead and reading through it. Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go you therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. 
And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. That's it from Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, we can flip to 1 Corinthians real quick as well and just go ahead and go to chapter 15 to get a sense of this command and this power shift, if you will, that has occurred and is being made note of by Christ and the Apostle Paul to his letter to the Corinthians, chapter 15, verses 16 through 25. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is in vain. You are yet in your sins. Then they also, which are fallen asleep in Christ, are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming, then comes the end when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and all power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. And the scripture. So the purpose for us diverging a little bit there is to get this, as I say, these two fundamental truths that Christians today fail to really acknowledge and understand. Too long we've allowed platitudes to define what should be clearly articulated and confessed in our documents and represented in our culture by application. But to assert pagan Cicero's philosophical claim, God as universal, for the fundamental principle of our belief as guided by reason, as professed by Cicero, needs to be decisively rejected for the truth borne out by the biblical record. The Constitution, nor the Declaration of Independence, profess a belief in Christ or Yahweh God, the God of Jacob Israel. The second main principle was virtue. De Tocqueville's quote from Democracy in America states, quote, America is great because she is good, and if America ever ceases to be good, America will cease to be great, end quote. The question arises, what is good? Once again, the writers of the framers' beliefs cite Cicero and his book, The Republic, to begin to express where they formed their ideas from. Now, to say this, one is ridiculed and as just simply ignoring biblical aspects which may have been expressed by the framers from time to time by various writers or by themselves that is recorded for us. As an example, James Madison in 1788 said, quote, to suppose that any form of government will secure liberty and happiness without virtue in the people is a chimerical idea, end quote. I couldn't agree more. 
However, first, think about it. If the Word of God is true, as Psalms 119, verse 160 specifically states, and Romans 2.20, and many others, then why would we seek to secure liberty and happiness with any form of government other than the administration of God? Is this not the recorded sin of Israel? However, in spite of these understandings, and as I mentioned, the writers conveying the framers' beliefs or understandings, cite this from Cicero and his book Republic. Quote, What can be more noble than the government of the state of virtue? For then the man who rules others is not himself a slave to any per- passion but has already acquired for himself all those qualities to which he is training and summoning his fellows. Such a man imposes no laws upon the people that he does not obey himself, but puts his own life before his fellow citizens as their law. Once again, I trust you realize the platitude of the words. Government of the state of virtue? What law or what principle of man is to inculcate such virtue? How does he already acquire those qualities for himself? How does a citizenry develop a willingness to place the public interest before their own private advantage? Apparently, Cicero believes A self-willed man derives this by what Aristotle called intellectual virtue. 1776, John Adams, quote, All sober inquirers after truth, ancient and modern, pagan and Christian, have declared that the happiness of man as well as his dignity consists in virtue. If there is a form of government, then whose principle and foundation is virtue, will not every sober man acknowledge it better calculated to promote the general happiness than any other form? End quote. Well, okay. What government recorded, ancient or modern, pagan or Christian, has the greater capacity or promise to that happiness than any other? The answer is clearly that government which follows or emulates the government of the God of Jacob Israel, nature's God. Because the Constitution for the United States of America did not model itself nearly as perfectly as we have been led or conditioned to believe. De Tocqueville said of the legislative records pre-Constitution, quote, the ideas of Christianity and liberty are so completely mingled that it is impossible to conceive one without the other. End quote. Precisely. And this is the biblical record. Separate one from the other, and disaster was not only imminent, but promised. To take Israel and separate itself from God, it would be disaster. Adam, separated from the will and the command of God, spelled disaster. And as far as for the Constitution's seven original articles, there is no mention of any of the biblical virtues of faith in God, 
hope in the promises for obedience to that God, love or charity in doing all the things as doing them for and by the love toward Yahweh, the God of creation, as we interact with one another. This virtue is a way of life. The virtue of this way of life is God toward. Aristotle, like Cicero, gives a definition that only man can when he refuses to accept, acknowledge, and attribute that virtue to the very God who authored it. Quote, Since our rationality is our distinctive activity, its exercise is the supreme good, moral virtue as a disposition to behave in that right manner, and as a means between extremes of deficiency and excess, which are vices, end quote. You see, it's our rationality, properly exercised. Well, okay, does man at all times rationally exercise rationality? The unequivocal answer is no. Are we disposed to behave in right behavior rationally? No, absolutely not. Therefore, our rationality and our disposition is tied to or connected with our Creator. Just as in the parent-child relationship, the child is not disposed to rational behavior. The parent teaches the child rational behavior. In doing so, the parent adopts words, symbols, signs, expressions, etc. to teach rational behavior. Touching a hot stove is irrational as it leads to harm. Disobeying the commands of God's instructions also is irrational and leads to harm. Sometimes naturally inflicted, other times by parent, or at times by God. Virtue is often defined by a rather simple term, that being power. The founders believed that the laws of the colonies should be sustained by the power of God, or the virtues of God. So they required an oath commensurate with a profession toward glorifying God by affirming to act toward one another virtuously in accordance with his divine will. It was this pre-constitution Christian virtue which emanated from the people which supported the condition for America's growth, blessings, and promises from God. Remember, to have studied the ancient writers and the ancient principles would mean they were aware of the four classical virtues of justice, prudence, temperance, and fortitude, but none of God's justice is found in the Constitution. God's prudence, meaning his wisdom over the created of the creation, is not represented or abdicated to or sought. God's temperance or even-handedness, that is his grace and mercy, is not chronicled as the purpose for which we practice all these virtues in respect of Yahweh and man. There is simply no mention or articulation in the document which expresses the resolve and fortitude to abide by his word and in accordance with his will, generation upon generation. 
neither are these classical or theological virtues being taught in the schools of America, and they were nowhere in the Constitution to ensure that they would be. Samuel Adams believed civil administrators should have demonstrated they have the experience and training to fill the office effectively, and he acknowledged in the life and public works of Samuel Adams, quote, Neither the wisest constitution nor the wisest laws will secure the liberty and happiness of a people whose manners are universally corrupt. He, therefore, is the truest friend to liberty of his country, who tries most to promote its virtue, and who will not suffer a man to be chosen into any office of power and trust, who is not a wise and virtuous man. However, the election process of the Constitution virtually secured a system which would spell failure for such a man, coupled with the device of a free press. Again, the Constitution is devoid of any principle found in Exodus 22 and Deuteronomy 1. To this principle of virtue in representative leaders, there can be no doubt. Many men of the time, including the framers, the signers, and legislative approvers, would by all accounts then and now be considered virtuous and religious pillars of the community. However, being so considered is no guarantee any of them would not propose bad legislation and approve it, or bad leaders to be appointed, and subsequently binding others by their legislative decrees in perpetuity. For example, being made in the image and likeness of God does not therefore make man God, and in the same likeness of God does not make man a better legislator to govern men than God himself. Another of the fundamental principles of the day was the concept of unalienable rights, besides life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Most of these attendant rights ascribed to these are codified in the Bill of Rights. In essence, all of these are embodied in the principal belief that God-given rights are vested in the sovereign authority of the people. But this is not borne out by scriptures. The God-given rights are, well, God-given. So it should follow, if they are God-given, they are vested in the sovereign authority of God. Consider, if you will, where did God give up his sovereignty over his created? This question is answered so clearly in the records of 1 Samuel chapter 8. Once one gives up the sovereignty of God over those God-given rights to a king, a congress, a senate, a three-branch constitutional republic, They are no longer God-given, but have been transferred to another authority, thereby granted or authorized, and as the case may be, denied by that authority. God told Samuel to tell Israel the authority this king would exude over them in chapter 8, verses 10 to 18. Let's go there quickly. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 10. And Samuel told all the words of the Lord unto the people that asked of him a king. And he said, This will be the manner of the king that shall reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for himself, for his chariots, and to be his horsemen. And some shall run before his chariots. He will appoint him captains over thousands and captains over fifties, and will set them to Erea's ground, and to reap his harvest, and to make his instruments of war and instruments of his chariots. 
and he will take your daughters to be confectioners and to be cooks and to be bakers. He will take your fields and your vineyards and your olive yards, even the best of them, and give them to his servants. And he will take the tenth of your seed and of your vineyards and give to his offices and to his servants. And he will take your men servants and your maid servants and your goodliest young men and your asses and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your sheep and you shall be his servants. And you shall cry out in that day because of your king which you have chosen you. And the Lord will not hear you in that day. End quote. You see, the right to choose a profession may be abdicated by the king or his authority or the constitution. Oh, well, that'll never happen in America, Doug. Our documents protect us from anybody ever doing that. The right to own a property or a particular property. That may be abdicated by your king or your authority or your constitution. How about the private property of your own sons and daughters may indeed be subjugated as they become servants of your king and his authority or your constitution and its authority. Their God-given rights to labor for their own may become the right of the king to hold them in servitude to his desires or your constitution and its authority. This king or this constitutional authority may even take your lands or your vineyards, and your fields, and the best of them by direct confiscation, or by subtle means of indebtedness. This king, or constitutional authority, may take a tenth of all your produce, or even three-twelfths, or even five-twelfths, or maybe even six-twelfths, or more, to feed, clothe, and provide for his expanding army and administration. You may even become his servants, in the very essence of economic bondage to this king or government authority or constitution. And you shall cry out in that day because of your king or your constitution, which you shall have chosen, and the Lord will not hear you in that day. The vast majority of so-called Christians today likely will never consider the possibility that God may have been willing to hear the cries of the people on the North American continent was because they professed with their mouth no king but King Jesus. However, no sooner than God had delivered the victory to them. Once again, in 1789, they forsook him as their king and acquiesced to another king. This time, the king would be we, the people. In the Federalist Papers, Alexander Hamilton would extol it this way, quote, The fabric of American empire ought to rest on the solid basis of the consent of the people. The streams of national power ought to flow immediately from that pure original fountain of all legislative authority, end quote. Wow. The divine right of kings had just been overthrown by the divine right of we the people. If you think that's a stretch or an inordinate attribution, consider the first proclamation of Massachusetts after the War of Independence was won. Quote, it is a maxim that in every government there must exist somewhere a supreme sovereign 
absolute and uncontrollable power, but this power resides always in the body of the people, and it never was or can be delegated to one man or a few. The great Creator has never given to men a right to vest others with authority over them, unlimited either in duration or in degree. End quote. Little more than a decade later, this same Massachusetts legislative body would transfer that power in ratifying the Constitution to a soon-to-be federal behemoth. I want you to all notice the syncretic view exhibited here in the words, quote, There must exist somewhere a supreme sovereign, end quote, while in the next line convincingly claiming, We the people as that sovereign. Quote, but this power resides always in the people. End quote. Really? Not according to God. Madison himself in the Federalist Papers conveyed, quote, The adversaries of the Constitution seem to have lost sight of the people altogether. They must be told that the ultimate authority resides in the people alone. End quote. That is very appealing. Now I want you to consider the great irony I'm about to convey in this next fundamental principle. Jefferson expresses it through the Declaration of Independence, and I quote, Prudence indeed will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes, and accordingly all experience has shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same objective evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty, to throw off such government. End quote. Uh-oh, now what? In colonial America, they threw off the government of a despotic king, but how does one throw off the despotic people? This will prove to be a whole new territory. You see, it has been almost fashionable over the millenniums to throw off these despotic governments of kings and oligarchs, monarchs and pharaohs, dictators and the like. But now, are we ready at last? to throw off ourselves and live up to our Christian creed and come under the authority of Christ the Emmanuel, our God with us. The Declaration of Independence further conveys, quote, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive to these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it, end quote. In America today, the current chatter is to alter it through convention of states, in other words, amend the imperfect in an effort to make it perfect, or to organize its governmental powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness, and to provide new guards for their future security. Perhaps as part of this series, as I've mentioned before, or in a future message series, I'll try to bring some sanity to those who have become overzealous and ready to push for this convention of states and 
show them the folly of many of the proposed amendments and what is conspicuously missing from the proposals. There can be no doubt the question of the colonial period after the War for Independence was what to do now. I believe it is abundantly and historically apparent Mankind seems most to be disposed to a propensity to be governed or ruled over. However, it appears they are equally disposed to reject the rulership of the Creator Himself. Once again, Madison, quote, If angels were to govern men, neither external or internal controls on government would be necessary. In framing a government to be administered by men over men, the great difficulty lies in this. You must first enable the government to control the governed, and in the next place oblige it to control itself. End quote. However, this once again rejects the ancient principles of Exodus nineteen five to six, and I quote Now therefore, if you'll indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure unto me above all the people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, end quote. This scripture is also confirmed in the last book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 6, 5, verse 10, and 21, 7. If to control the governed means to do so contrary to the command or voice of Yahweh our God, then how are we to oblige ourselves, we the people, to control ourselves? The controlling mechanism must be our God and His word and His command. I'd like to conclude this message and perhaps the series for now, with some questions. Does the divine immutable law of God authorize amendment? If not, why not? If a republic is of the people, by the people, and for the people, one need only to change the people. Has this happened? Madison in Federalist 39 states, All power direct or indirect, is from the people. This, therefore, is the power of public opinion. Is this a good thing? Is there one provision of this Constitution for the United States of America which does not allow, in fact, demand the putting away of the divine immutable laws of God? Where is the mechanism in this great document for him that knows to do good to punish the evil deeds of those exercising the power? Where is the provision to teach the people God's commandments, statutes, and judgments? Does this Constitution protect your freedom to speak against Antichrist's wickedness and to assemble against it to drive it from among us? Does it protect your life, liberty, and property from plunder, confiscation by burdensome taxation or from passing to your posterity an inheritance free of any of those concerns? Does it provide liberty to the inhabitants every seven years and a jubilee release every 50th year? Does it provide for participation or agreement with heathen nations who reject the knowledge and understanding of Christ? Now, as I said periodically throughout this series. I do not believe and I did not intend for this series to be a blanket condemnation of all individuals of that colonial period and era. What I'm simply hoping to inspire us to do 
is to consider what may have adversely occurred instead of what might have occurred had we continued to have no king but King Jesus. We're no less the hypocrites, as Christ labeled them 2,025 years ago. I believed what I was told and what I was taught until I began to more earnestly study God's word 30 years ago. I dare say no one should be incensed by what is conveyed in this series if they will also diligently search his word. By the time I was 25, my world was being rocked by the reality of Article 1, Section 10 and Article 1, Section 8. No state shall make anything but gold and silver coin a payment and tender of debt. How can this be? I began to be aware of the creation of the state the federal chartered 501c3 church and a number of other constitutional inconsistencies and other things. Then I listened to 20 years of talk radio who told me, oh, this debt is not a problem. You know, we're a, we're a thriving economic nation. We can, we can bust through debt. No, no time. No time at all. All we need is more conservatives, better leaders to abide by their oath of the Constitution. And instead, what's been going on is the organized church has done as it did in centuries past, continued to deceive the people, even though we've had the written word right in front of us and right in our grasp. Nearly everything from A to Z in our Bible and our Christian duty has been eschewed. I began to ask myself how much of what I had always believed about the framers of the Constitution and the eloquent orators and the ingeniousness of their ideas was also misleading. Oh, I know. I've read the quotes, as I said. I've read the Barton books and many others. But I'd never read any of the original source documents so as to put everything in its proper context. And in the light of the last three or four or five decades, in fact, that has actually come out. But people are so stuck with what they believed before. They go out and they continue to parrot it, parrot it as if to keep it alive, to keep it from dying, what they've once believed. And it would be far better to let that preconceived notion and belief die, to accept it as having been wrong, and to reject it and to cast it aside so that we can more readily be accepting of the words of the gospel of Christ. In the end, to say that those men of that constitutional America era were ungodly or in a Masonic conspiracy of their own, I will leave to those authors and proponents. But what I ask those who will listen to these messages to the end is, what has been the fruit of that document? Do not think in your heart to answer me saying, well, Doug, man is corrupt and it's his sinful nature. To say that is to acknowledge that whatever document we draft to govern ourselves is destined for failure because of that nature and that where we are incapable of following Yahweh's our God and his commands. Over and over again throughout scriptures, we have been taught that obedience to our Creator's divine immutable laws, statutes, and judgments will lead to life and life abundantly. That, ladies and gentlemen, is positive law. I know there will be many asking, well, who are you? What makes you think you are now the smartest man in the room? The answer is, Nothing. And I don't.
Once again, I remain thankful for the opportunity to minister under those of the New Covenant, as Hebrews 8.8 informed us of. This is Doug Nelson, trusting you will hear these words one day. Well done, thou good and faithful servant.